0: Well, good morning. I'm excited that, uh, that both of you could come and that you were able to make it out of the snow. I'm looking to return this to Elias, but he decided not to stay for the sermon. I'm sure it's not personal. I wanted to uh, draw your attention again to our scripture journals. We ran out last week, which is fantastic, and so we have more forthcoming. But what we encourage you to do is to pick up one of these journals that will be at the back, Lord willing, next week. There's the purple variety for illustration purposes. So you can see the, the Bible text on the left, and then on the right, you can write down your notes, or you can doodle, or you can put your laundry list. Don't do that. Um, because And then you can take it, and when you're done, you can put it on your shelf, and then you can review the books of the Bible that you've studied here in church. Or if you want to do it on your personal devotions as well, that'd be super cool. And that way, you kind of have a running uh, record of what you 've studied in the Bible, and this one is this one is the more illustrated version, so when I pulled one family, I said, uh, "Should we get them that are lined so that you can take notes or that are illustrated I mean that are blank so you can illustrate it and I got about a 50-50 split in that family, as you can guess, maybe along gender lines or not, uh, so so you could pick up either one we 're going to have the lined version for notes, and we 're going to have the blank version for illustrations, or uh, whatever you want to call that, and I'll return this to my son. I stole it from him because he needs it, even though he left. <laughs> all right, well, let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Acts 4 today, Acts 4, 1 through 22. Now, when we're done reading, we'll respond with, this is God's Word, and if you will respond with amen just out of a declaration of the uh, how high we hold God's Word in our midst. John 4, 1 through 22, reading out of the English Standard Version. Thank you, Acts 4, not John 4. Acts 4, 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next days, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, "'By what power or by what name do you do this?' Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "'Rulers of the people and elders,' And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healing standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall be done with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may, not, may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your seat. J.B. Pritzker is the governor of the great state of Illinois. Some of you can debate the great part, but it is a pretty great state, having uh, lived there for the last 14 years. And in his campaign to become governor, J.B., as he was affectionately decided to call himself, uh, became somewhat popular. He was the Democratic nominee for governor, and, and he was running against a, a sitting Republican governor and jb had a little bit of an advantage because not only of the political leanings of the state but also because bar none he is the richest man holding political office in the country you may have also heard of our president donald trump a self-proclaimed billionaire yes jb is much richer than donald trump even And it is with much of his own wealth that he was able to seek that office for election, through election, because he was able to spend money on campaigning and everything else. Recently in the news, it's been announced that Michael Bloomberg, uh, of the city of New York, state of New York, was was willing to spend up to a billion of his own dollars, challenging J.B. Pritzker as the richest man in politics, to keep Donald Trump from reattaining the office in 2020, either by becoming president himself, or by supporting another candidate. It's nothing new that through power and influence, one seeks political power. Through money, one seeks political power. These are all rich politicians, and we could, we could go back just a little bit further, that actors like Ronald Reagan or Ronald, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger have sought political office, using their affluence and wealth to attain power and political office. Well, if we go back a few centuries, many centuries, we find that the same thing was happening and had happened in early Jewish life. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, were two of the competing and um, and elevated factions that were the leaders of the Israelites, dating all the way back eh, to about 100 BC when they they were independent. of of any other foreign rulers. And then when the Romans came in and established Roman rule, the Sadducees became the main dominant political power outside of the Roman world. We often think about religion and politics separately in our country because when our country was founded, we had a separation of church and state. So we have our separation of church and state, but that's really a new concept In all of previous human history, with very few exceptions, church and state go together. Church should inform state, or religion should inform state, and the state should inform religion. My brother lives in in a country where religion, identity, and politics are inseparable. You can't celebrate culture without also celebrating religion because the two are so firmly intertwined and much of our world history, and much of our world culture. And so it's this backdrop that we enter into the scene with Peter and with John. We know from, the, from last week's sermon, from the previous chapter, that they had spoken, and that Peter had spoken, and that he had healed the man who was born crippled in Solomon's colonnade, and there a great crowd arose. In fact, later in the chapter 4, it says that all of Jerusalem had heard of this miracle that had happened. Not simply a small gathering of 20 or 30 or 40 or even a couple of hundred, but all of Jerusalem. We can probably read that language as not literally being all of Jerusalem, but by and large, everyone had heard It was as though it had been tweeted and gone viral. Everyone had heard that the cripple sitting at the beautiful gate has been healed by Peter through the power of Jesus. Jesus had become recently a a famous figure, having healed people, having performed public miracles, even riding on a donkey through Main Street, so to speak, with people crying, Hosanna, only to turn on him a few short days later. But then... He rose from the dead, and people weren't sure what was the next step. Now what do we do with this Jesus? And we find out what they begin to do as a culture in Acts 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, chapter 4, verse 1. It's very interesting to see who... And what and how they're doing it? What are they doing? They are going to incarcerate the instigators, <laughs> John and Peter, and they're going to do it by coming upon them. Who are they using? The captain of the temple. Now I know that Truman now has a police force, if you've seen it, but uh, but they didn't always. And we used to work for our uh, for Moody Security, and there was a, there was plenty of of jokes about the. Uh, the local security. Maybe you've seen a movie like Mall Cop and, uh, Paul Blart, I think it was called Mall Cop, right? And, and there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of humor involved because people who work in the security world sometimes, uh, think of themselves as pretty high and mighty, but people who are maybe a police officer or sheriff, they, they recognize that the power of a security guard is very, very limited. Normally security guards are told that they must observe and report only. So you might have, like, some spray, maybe even some handcuffs, probably not a firearm. And what are you supposed to do if you see something happen? It's kind of like loss prevention at Walmart. If you see something happen, you get to watch it happen. Yep, it happened. Then you get to call the police, and and you bring in the real authority, right? Having been in that position myself for a while, I I recognize the the limited powers of a security team like that. You get to use 10 codes, but that's about it. And this is what happened, is that the the security of the temple, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So here the Jewish people have no real arresting power because the real authority lies in Rome. And even further down the line of authority, you have King Herod, and he has power that has been prescribed to him by the Roman Empire. And then you have the Sadducees. They're very sad, you see, because they had no power and they did not believe in the resurrection. And so here the priest and the captain of the temple, they come upon them and they were greatly annoyed because of the teaching of John and Peter. I love that word greatly annoyed. Any of you been greatly annoyed with your children yesterday? I'm seeing a couple parents glancing sideways at their kids. Right, you're, they were greatly annoyed. They weren't angry. They weren't indignant. They weren't ready to kill them. They were just greatly annoyed. It's as though they were going to a political rally, and at this political rally, they're recognizing that one of their political opponents, who might even be of the same party, has a slightly different view than they do, and they're kind of casting doubt on the opposing opinion. Well, you know, healthcare. Oh, no, not healthcare. They like to attack me on healthcare. You see, the Sadducees, while they were very religious, you couldn't separate their religion from their culture. They were the affluent and wealthy members of the society. Not all of the affluent and wealthy members were Sadducees, but most of the Sadducees were from affluent and wealthy families. They were not accepted by the majority, the majority was, were much more in support of the Pharisees who were very literal in their interpretation of the law and had spiritual as well as physical, understa- a physical understanding of the Jewish religion, of the teachings of Moses. Whereas the Sadducees were only concerned about the here and the now and how the sacrificial system affected their day-to-day life before death because they believed in no resurrection, we learn from the text. And so this is what their foundation was based upon, that they wanted a good life for their culture. They wanted a way that their, their wealth and their status could be maintained and that the, even the wealth and status of the Jewish people could be maintained in the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was from over there. And so by keeping the peace, by not by not pushing too hard towards religion or towards the next life or the afterlife, they were able to maintain the status quo as the de facto ruling class of the Jewish people. And so it was that they became greatly annoyed because of the teaching they were teaching the people. Again, the people here is referring to the Jews, as we've learned throughout Acts. The people is referring to the Jewish nation and proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees bumped heads already. The Sadducees said there's no spiritual, there's no angels, there's no spirit realm, there's only the here and now. And the Pharisees were fully accepting, would have a fairly similar worldview that we would, of God, of the spirit spirit world, of angels, of heaven, of hell. They believed in all of that. And so here the apostles were proclaiming not just the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. So what did they do? Huh. Verse three, they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. They said, we, we've already dealt with a long day's work. We don't want to address this today. So we're going to arrest them. A 21st century, uh, Jewish teacher said that this was their first problem. That if they, were, if they would, want, would have wanted to have crushed this new little sect, all they would have had to do is ignore them. But they didn't. They validated Paul and Peter's actions by arresting them, thus showing the entire crowd that we fear what they're saying. We fear the message of Jesus. So they arrest them, they put them in custody. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. If you remember back a couple of chapters ago, at the end of the day, verse 47 of chapter two, the Lord added day by day those who were being saved and the number came to about 3,000. So now we're up to 5,000 just men and they came to believe about Jesus. So here we have this political group, the Sadducees, and there was one family amongst them that was more powerful than the rest. So on this next day, verse 5, the rulers and elders and the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander who were of the high priestly family. So we have, the father in, we have the father-in-law, we have the son-in-law. They had married, they were keeping it all in the family. Their, you know, their families had married, they joined together, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? See, for them, it's all political. They're trying to establish, what party are you in? Are you, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? Are you like a left-leaning one or kind of like a right-leaning one? Tell us, which party are you in? We have to define you so that we can discredit and dismiss you. Are you one of the scribes? Are you one of the Pharisees? What is going on? At this point in time, they're clueless. They don't recognize that these were some of Jesus' apostles yet. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, by what by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's through the power of Jesus This man. So either the man was arrested with Peter and John or he had come back willingly or he had been brought back to be a witness to what was going on. But either way, the crippled man was once again with him. And I can just imagine him no longer leaning on two people for 100% of his support. But rather, I can just kind of imagine him grabbing Peter and John like this and just excited. And this wasn't the excitement of a young man who was in his teens or early 20s who was just excited about life and he could kind of be easily swayed because he hadn't had much life experience. No, we find out later in the text that he was over 40 years old. This had been a man that had lived, according to the lifespan of the day, a full life as a crippled man. Can you imagine living, being middle-aged or even a senior citizen in our culture and, and never having been able to walk? And yet now he was and he was healed and he was standing before the entire ruling class of the Jewish people and he did not care who saw or who heard and in fact, he wanted them to see. I have been healed and I want you to see by what power I have been healed by. So let it be known to all of you that it's in the name of Jesus Christ. This Jesus, verse 11, is the stone that was rejected by you The builders which had become the cornerstone. The builders of the Jewish culture, of the Jewish nation. Who was that? The people standing before him. The people that they were standing before were the builders of the Jewish culture. They were rejected. Jesus was rejected by the builders. He was rejected by the Pharisees. He was rejected by the scribes. He was rejected by the Sadducees. He was rejected by everybody that mattered. Even though they were tasked with the building up of the Jewish faith, that they were tasked with the building up of one day being a blessing to all nations. And here, once again, Peter is even giving them another chance. Whom you rejected, the builders. That stone has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Have you ever had that conversation with somebody? Where in the Bible does it even say that Jesus was God? There are plenty of places, by the way. Does Jesus ever say it? Yes, he does. Does does, does the Bible ever explicitly say that you have to only believe in Jesus because he's the only way? That kind of seems narrow-minded, doesn't it? Well, what what if you go down this path? We live in a society that is very pluralistic, that will believe many things and thinks that there are many ways to God or to something. Many ways to live a good life. And as Christians, we're sometimes encouraged through the, through the media and through conversations with people that you should just be more tolerant. And we should be tolerant, right? We should, we should care about other people and love other people, whether they agree with us or not. But we cannot compromise on who Jesus is. We cannot compromise on the only way to God. We cannot compromise that there is one way that we can have... A life here on earth is we were intended in only one way to live in eternity with God as opposed to apart from God. How do we know? Right here. If you don't know it, memorize it. Acts 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no one else. There is no misunderstanding of this text here. It is a claim of to one way, one way under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Even the Jewish people who had the chosen favor of God upon them, there was still that only one way. It's not by the sacrifice of goats and rams. It's not by being good. It's not by agreeing with Rome or disagreeing with Rome. It's not about following all of the, the law like the Pharisees were trying to do and then some. It's only through Jesus and so then verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and then they perceived, these are uneducated common men, and they were astonished. In those days, if you were, if you were to stand up in front of people and speak, if you were to go to, the, to one of the places of cultural exchange, if you were to go to the temple and you were to, to talk to people, whether it was in Solomon's uh, Colonnade or somewhere else, then you were expected to quote people. Any of you in college or, or maybe you're in academia and you're not allowed to think anything yourself, right? I remember being a, a, in my undergraduate, writing my undergraduate papers and I'd have an idea and my professor would say, where'd you get that idea? I said, I don't know, I just came up with it. Then it doesn't count. What do you mean it doesn't count? Unless you're quoting somebody who is published, then it doesn't count. So then you have to find somebody that says something important and you quote it or, and then you write it and then you cite it at the end, right? That's what they were expected to do. If you have an idea, it's because you have studied under another great teacher. You have studied under the greatest. That's what the apostle Paul did. We find out later in Acts, right? He had studied under the greatest minds of his day and he was allowed to to speak because he had had the education. And when people had great things that they said, it's, ah, you see, he's saying something great because he studied under someone great. Well, Peter and John had studied under someone great, but not as recognized by the Jewish academy, so to speak. They recognized, they being the ruling class, this political family of Caiaphas and John, Alexander, this high priestly family, they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. I just kind of wonder how that went. The English, the Greek, it's, it's the same. They recognized. How did they recognize? Was there some glow about them? I doubt it. Was there an accent that they spoke with that revealed they were from Galilee? Probably. How did they recognize him? Did they remember in the, in the backs of their minds? Like, wait, remember when we were talking with Jesus, not obviously at the trial, because by then his disciples had abandoned him, but at the triumphal entry there, Jesus was, was riding on the donkey and coming behind him were his apostles and they go, wait a minute. I remember that guy. We don't know exactly how it happened. But either way, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they were overcome with a desire to rid themselves of these men. We got rid of Jesus and we thought that was going to be the end of our problem. And we're going to continually be able to peacefully have some autonomy and have some rule over our people without having to worry about all of the the attempt to overthrow Rome and the attempt to live this better life. Just everybody be satisfied with your own class, okay? No. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. That's said in the text. Do you know the biggest unsaid thing in the text here? What is the one thing that the Sadducees wished that they could refute against what Peter and John had said? What was the one thing that they did not believe in that was more important than anything else? The resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe you could die and come back to life. They said, no, it's the here and it's the now. And so the unsaid elephant in the room is Jesus Christ of Nazareth had risen from the dead. He had come back to life. He had conquered the grave and death and That is what Peter and John were proclaiming, that Jesus had been raised and you too can also be raised. It is said that they couldn't refute that the the man before them was healed, but it was obvious that they couldn't refute that Jesus had come from the dead. He had been seen by hundreds, maybe by thousands of people, resurrected, eyewitnesses. So they could only deal with what they could deal with. They couldn't, they couldn't help the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead and that now there was this wildfire spreading message of Jesus' resurrection. But they could attempt to stop it in its tracks and stop more miraculous signs and wonders from being done in their midst. So here's this man, healed by Jesus, standing in front of the seats of power. And what does he do? He shows and tells. If anyone had any questions about how his ankles and his feet had been weak from birth, about how he could not walk, they could have asked him. It wasn't something that simply happened through his adolescence. He was at the end of his lifespan. Now, he might have lived for another 20 or 30 years. We don't know. But the average lifespan in those days was not much past 40. In fact, it was less than that. So we have this man who's saying, I'm here to show and tell you what Jesus has done for me. So I ask, like the title of the sermon, what will you say? Every day, when you're before your children, when you're before your family, your husband or wife, your parents, your siblings, your aunts and uncles, when you're in front of your employers and coworkers. When you're in front of the seats of power that you interact with, whether it's maybe politically on a larger scene or academically, or maybe on a much smaller scale, do you show and tell what Jesus has done for you? Do you proclaim with boldness, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I'm not saying that we have to go and pound pulpits. I'm not saying that we have to interact with every single person we meet and saying, hey, do you know Jesus? Some have the gift of evangelism and God gives them that ability to do that. But every single one of us are called to show and tell what Jesus has done for me, for you. Do you have a testimony? What is it? Use it. We took an apologetics class in college, and there's only, you know, you know the arguments, right? The ontological argument that you, you talk about. You talk about the space, the space. You talk about space. You talk about the planets, and you talk about how somebody would have had to create those. They couldn't have just, um, you know, arrived where they are by chance. Or you know, there's there's all these different arguments that you can you can approach a apologetic argument with, but we live in a postmodern world. So even if you can kind of convince somebody, which I don't recommend, even if you can kind of convince somebody that you're right and they're wrong, at the end of the day, we live in a postmodern society where multiple versions of truth are accepted. accepted, And they can say, well, that can be true for you, but it's not true for me. But we can use the same argument. The only argument that no one can refute is your testimony. What has God done in your life? And that is the thing to consider this morning. What has God done in your life? Now, I'm not looking for a spiritual answer here, but but think about it in your mind. What has God done in your life? I would think that there are three probable answers, and then there's an abundance of answers from there, right? There are three main categories of answers that this would fall into. One is everything, He saved me. He redeemed me. These testimonies that we like to hear, right? Like, hey, I used to do this, and now God completely changed my life, and I'm going in this direction. You've heard those testimonies. Some of us have those testimonies. Others of us are kind of jealous of those testimonies. Well, I was raised in a, you know, a Jesus-fearing, God-loving home, and I'm still a Jesus follower and a God-lover. The end, right? No dramatic change. Then there's the answer of, well, God has done everything in my life. On the outside, I say that, but inside, I just feel like God has done nothing. I can walk the walk and I can talk the talk. I can come to Grace Community Bible Church and and I can can grow up here and I know all of the right answers. I can go up to the the kids takeaway with Pastor Ben and I can give him the right answers. Then I grow up and I'm an adult. And then I go to college and I can give the right answers until one day I just recognize, you know what? Jesus has never done anything for me. I'm struggling with this issue that I have deep down inside of me. I have this attraction or this bent towards this thing or people or person or action. I have this, I have this rejection of innate in me of the things that God wants me to love or he says he wants me to love, but you know what? I still have that attraction or I still have that repulsion of that. Jesus has done nothing for me. And then there's the willingness to just say it. Well, Jesus hasn't done anything for me. We would call that an unbeliever. Somebody that has not even made a profession of faith. So I ask what category you're in. And then of that, there's of course a lot of subcategories, right? Have you embraced Jesus? Are you following after him wholeheartedly? Are you allowing 2020 to be a year of refreshment where Jesus, through the study of his word and the submission to his Holy Spirit, are you being refreshed by Jesus? As you go to small group, as you come to church, as you participate in your community, are you refreshed by Jesus? Or is it a facade that you're putting on? You know that you're supposed to be refreshed by Jesus, but you're not really feeling it. You know that he's supposed to give you, God, the Holy Spirit's power to do what's right and to follow what is right and to say no to what is wrong, but you just aren't experiencing it. And you have all but decided in your mind, forget this. This is a farce. Let me encourage you, if that's where you're at today, that sanctification, the process of being made like Christ is often a gradual and always a lifelong process. And that when you submit yourself to the teachings of God's word and to a community of believers, then you can begin to experience freedom from the things which enslave you. Or you can reject it completely. You can reject it completely. And I tell you, there's no hope for you. Now, you could do self-help and you could do all kinds of counseling, but at the end of the day, a lot of self-help without Jesus is just framing everything you do and say in such a way that there is no accountability for you. You know what? This sin problem isn't a problem. It's just a condition. You just have this kind of phobia or this kind of, you can fill in the blank for yourself. And that can be good to understand what, where, your, where your struggles are, what's good and what's bad and what's kind of acceptable and helpful to culture, but it is not salvific. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, you will be left without God. Why? Because there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we, what's that next word? Must be saved, must be saved. If you want salvation, it must be through Jesus. So then, what happened? Verse 14, they were seeing that the man standing was beside him. They had nothing to say in opposition. When you use your testimony to other people, what are people going to say? I've never had that experience yet in my life where I say, this is what Jesus has done for me. I used to be here, I'm now here. I've never had somebody say, You are wrong. That never happened to you. Yeah, it did. You can check my Facebook feed. See, this is what I used to... Now I... It's history. It's a fact. It's my experience. Who are you to say anything against my experience? It doesn't mean that you're definitively right because they can say, well, my experience is different than yours. That's fine. But if you want to have what God has given to me, just listen to verse 12 of Acts 4. They can do nothing to refute your experience with what jesus has done from you for you so what do they do what should we do to these men for a notable sign has been performed through them verse 16 that is evident to all the inhabitants of jerusalem and we cannot deny it but in order that it may spread no further among the people let us warn them to speak no more of anyone in this name All that the the authorities are doing here is proving that they have no authority. (laughs) You better not! What if I do? They find out some things to do, as we'll learn later in Acts 4. I'm sorry, further on in Acts, not in Acts 4. So they called them. So here's John and Peter before the ruling council. And they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I love that they don't just disobey. They continue to invite conversation. They're not just opposed and rebellious. They're not just protesting. Rather, they give an answer. Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So I can listen to you or I can listen to God. And you could tell me as, you know, part of the religious establishment, you tell me whether I should listen to you or to God for we cannot, but speak of what we have heard and seen. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people for all. were praising God for what had happened. Wow. So the first question that I have for you to consider is, do you show and tell Jesus? Do you show and tell Jesus? The second question I have for you is, if so, what are you showing and telling? What has Jesus done in your life? He's made a transformation. It seems like you're not really making much progress in your, in your life or walk with Christ. Or you're just a blatant rejecter of Jesus? Second question. Then the third question is, is it evident that you have been with Jesus? Is it evident you've been with Jesus? Because somehow, they, they recognized, the ruling council recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Are your words winsome? Jesus didn't always have winsome words. Sometimes he had quite sharp words, but then again, he was God and he was always and is always right. You and I cannot make either of those claims. We're not always right and we are not God. So are your words towards people winsome? Or are they harsh? Do your, do your words show that you've been with Jesus? Do they show that you've been to the well uh, wellspring of life and that you've been refreshed in his waters? Or are they unkind? I'm not saying this in judgment over you. Rather, I'm allowing God's word to stand before us and to really encourage and judge all of us. Because don't look too closely at me. Or ask my kids or my wife or my parents if I'm always winsome. Because they will tell you I'm not. But we do not follow a God who demands perfection. We follow a God who welcomes transformation and then enables us to have it. And so then what do we do? We go to Jesus for refreshment, for that extra grace. We come on Sunday and receive communion together to receive God, to receive that grace in a special new way. We come on church on Sunday to fellowship with believers and, and maybe go to our small group in the afternoon or evening or another day. We, we go to God daily in our prayer closets and reading our Bibles to be refreshed. And we say, God. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And we repent. We repent. That's easy to say these things in our culture. But consider the culture that they were spoken in. It seems initially, and and it's true that initially, there was nothing very major that, this, that, the Pharisees, uh, that the Sadducees could have done to John and Peter because they were not in the majority. The Pharisees were in the majority. The Pharisees were more the working class representatives of the people. They were the ones that started the movement away from the temple and towards synagogues, towards a de-established religion hierarchically. And so when the temple was destroyed, the Pharisees were ready to come in and continue the Jewish religion As it kind of continues until this very day. But even though they did not have the majority, the Sadducees, as we find out later, still had power. They still punished Paul, I'm sorry, punished Peter and punished John severely, as we learn later on, that the church must scatter. And I don't think we're quite yet at a crossroads in our country where we have to worry about that. But a time is probably coming. I I encourage you to be praying for um, Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary right now is being sued by a couple of of SSA or same-sex attracted individuals who were expelled from the school because of their stance on biblical marriage and said you can only be married to a woman if you're a man or a man if you're a woman and two different students were expelled because they were married to someone of the same gender. And right now, they're both individually suing Fuller Seminary. And right now, a little bit of our religious freedom, so to speak, is in the courts, or will be in the courts in the coming days. So I encourage you to be praying about that situation. Because as you can understand, the ramifications culturally as as an entire country are huge. But we're not there yet. We're not there where when we say the name of Jesus, we have to fear political retribution. Where we could be killed, where we could be tried, where we could at least be imprisoned. But we probably are to the place where we could be ridiculed. I have been. Have you been ridiculed for the name of Christ? So work so that you are not the stumbling block. Right? You're being winsome. You're being loving. You're showing Jesus to people. But guess what? Jesus is the stumbling block. Because when you come to Jesus and you you submit yourselves to the, him, it is that. It is a submission to his authority. Our culture talks about our authority and, and, and our power and what you feel like you want to be and how to express the way you are. So when you're winsome and when you're loving and when you're showing Christ to people, some people will still come to Christ and they will run up against that stumbling block. So it's still not very... Fun sometimes to share your faith because it's causing people to run sometimes headlong into a brick wall. But I encourage you, that is what we are supposed to do. For why? Because salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So let us go out and let us share with our Jerusalem. Let us share with the people that we interact with on a daily basis. Let us share with the people that we may interact with once and never again. Let us help people come to Christ. Then we can invite them to be a part of a growing community at this church or another gospel-believing church that they can grow in Christ. And that is your spiritual act of service. And then we can encourage them to begin serving Christ as well. And it continues this cycle of discipleship all over again where they can then be encouraged to go out and share Christ and to show and tell what Jesus has done for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we submit ourselves to you recognizing that you are God. That there is salvation in no one else, that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. So thank you for saving me, Jesus. And thank you for saving many in this room. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.